Well, the coffee shop gets funky today. Joining me at World Cup Coffee and Tea at Northwest 18th and Gleason is Michael Quinby, who's the leader of the Roseland Hunters, who have been blasting out funk for over a year on a regular basis and are about to release, this time, their first album produced by Steve Berlin. The Hunters have some of Oregon's best musicians, including Damien Erskine, Reinhard Mills, Brian Foxworth. Welcome to the coffee shop. I'm Tom D'Antoni, editor of Oregon Music News. Next time, you'll meet Michael Shoehorn Conley, who plays saxophone and tap dances at the same time. And then the following week, it's OMN's publisher, Anna Amon. But right now, let's talk with Michael Quinby, shall we? Uh, August 21st. We have the official date of August 21st. This time by the Roseland Hunters. Yes, yes. I'm holding it in my hand. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. <laughs> Congratulations. It's been a very long road. With, uh, very really? proud. Of, very long? proud of it. How, how long? Really, we started tracking, uh, I think it was April of 2013. And it was just going to be a little Kickstarter EP. And uh, we had a very successful small-scale Kickstarter campaign and um, went in and cut the basics for five tunes and quickly realized that there was something really special about the combination of this incredible band that I have and Justin Phelps, the uh, engineer who is also sort of co-producing everything, and uh, that it, it became, in Justin's words, sort of criminal to not give it a professional treatment because of the quality of just the basics that we came up with that this is a very serious um uh endeavor and to cut all the vocals in one day and all the keyboards overdubs in one day and then to mix it all um in you know a grand total of three days was basically totally ridiculous so uh it's been this sort of epic journey um <laughs> and uh once we figured out and you could hear the giant forehead slap of mine because this was just I just wanted to record my band and get a little EP there's zero ambition attached to this it was like so how did you bring Steve Berlin in did you did That was you Justin Justin basically had been uh, is friends with him and had done several projects and um we actually needed uh a baritone sax part. He says, oh, I know exactly who to call. And um, basically, we then got the bright idea, like, why don't we see if Steve Berlin wants to produce that tune? Wouldn't that be cool to have Steve Berlin on one song? And uh, we recorded the song, and he came and basically completely repaired the entire song. When he came in, Chicory. Yeah. (laughs) Which is the juggernaut song of the record. It's got like unbelievable amounts of tracking and and, uh, three three and four part horn parts. And and, uh, and there was only one session where there was more than one horn player in the studio. Everybody (laughs) laid down a part and left. And like some other day, we brought some other cat in. So we had Farnell Newton and... uh, 
uh, Daniel Lamb and Reggie Houston and uh, and Steve. So we had this absurd all-star horn section that never was in the same room together, <laughs> <laughs> which which is kind of the idea because the horn feel I wanted for this tune was was rebirth. You know that that amazing controlled chaos that they come up with, um, and uh, and I think we pulled it off. It's it's very funky. It never fails whenever we've recorded a lot of this stuff. A lot of these songs are much longer because we're having so much fun with the tune in the studio that what on the record is a four minute song is actually a six or seven minute song, and some of the most outrageous stuff musically happens later on in the song. So I've cringed every time we've cut the ends off of these songs because it turns into a jam album, which is, you know, kind of takes away from the, you know, nice sort of compact songwriting approach we were trying to take. That's for the live. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Yeah. If I, we can, as soon as we're ready to compete with, uh, I think the very best live album ever recorded in the music that I love is Little Feet's Waiting for Columbus. Oh yeah. And uh you know of course that's it's it's for that genre. I mean you can you know you've got BB King's live stuff that yeah. just changed everybody's lives and well, of course came from from the Atlantic states you know Little Feet were king. Oh yeah and and which is amazing cuz they're a bunch of LA guys. Right. <laughs> but you know, here I am sporting fleur de lis all over my stuff, and you know, I grew up in Ashland, so <laughs> so yeah, it was a. When, when did the New Orleans bug bite you? Uh, I was actually touring with Joe Lewis Walker in. Well, I bet there's stories about that. Oh yeah, and we'll just just walk right on past those for the time being. Uh, so we were actually we opened for. Um, uh, it was, let's see here, us and Huey Lewis in the News, yeah. who we were touring with at the time, uh-huh. uh, Fats Domino, the Neville Brothers, and uh-huh. Gladys Knight. And that was the opening ceremony party for the Louisiana Lottery at when, the when Superdome. Was when was that? And I'm trying to say I was 25, so 1941. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was 1990. Okay. So, 93, 92, so something Reggie like that. Houston was probably playing He was probably, right yeah, I've probably met Reggie yeah. long before Portland. Uh, but, you know, I didn't know anything about New Orleans music. My only connection to New Orleans music was Little Feet. Yeah. And, and yeah, didn't yeah, – yeah. I, I, Well, that's a good way in. I literally did not know who the meters were. I mean, that's uh-huh. how sheltered I was. I picked up a guitar because of Stevie Ray and, and continue to, you know, you know, regularly uh, pay homage at that church. But uh-huh. it – the real the music that really moved me was when I heard the Neville Brothers at that show and met Nick Daniels III, who is now my friend and mentor, and Willie Green, who proceeded to sort of take me by the scruff of the neck and and uh, bounce me around New Orleans and let me see music that just completely changed my life. Right. It quite literally changed my life. Like, oh my God, yeah. um, I get to step out of the world of writing. Texas shuffles <laughs> and and it was just it's just really like the the afro-cuban influence my father is a jazz pianist and a music teacher and his influences I mean I was 
I was the kid in third grade when everybody else was bringing in Elton John and Eagles records. I was bringing in Bitches Brew, you know. <laughs> so uh, uh, that that more, I think it's uh, it's just a different vibe, and I really, for some reason, I don't know, some past life thing or something, yeah. um, it's always resonated with me. And since then, since that experience, <clears throat> my writing changed. Um, my influences changed dramatically, and it's good. They dovetail, you know that yeah. that Stevie Ray kind of uh, big, wide Strat sound. I love marrying those two influences, and so that's were really you, were you a blues shredder? Um, <clears throat> I thought I was, uh, and, and it's very interesting because you know you're a, you're a young kid and you go out on the road with somebody like Joe Lewis Walker, yeah, um, and I I definitely made a conscious turn from being like a blues acolyte like the kind of kid who yeah. will sit and like stevie ray did yes. sit and listen to every albert king note ever played and every yeah and, and i just i never took that approach um part of it's because i'm incredibly lazy <laughs> that, that, that involves sitting still and paying attention to something um uh and that it actually sort of granted me a voice in my opinion um metaphorically speaking of my own as far as like i'm not going to go in there and pull off the perfect um big fat texas shuffle i'm, I'm not going to be that guy it's kind of um I do believe that the guys who really nail it, like every time, it always upsets me whenever I go to Austin. You walk into any one of those crappy little bars on 6th Street and there's some cat who is playing that shuffle so perfectly. And by perfectly, I mean imperfectly, that beautifully placed behind the beat sway and swagger in that Texas shuffle. And I, I, I do a good job of that. Yeah. But I do believe that there's something about, I don't know, the terrible food or the political environment. I don't know what it is, but it definitely gives those dudes an advantage. I definitely believe it. And to be influenced by it was one thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, you know, Rick Perry, your governor, you find out. That'll make something swing. So I, I definitely, and you know, I kind of try to pay the same attention to the New Orleans influence as well. I'm not from New Orleans. Yeah. I'm not trying to claim it. Um, I am proud to claim it as an influence. Yeah. Um, and I'm also very respectful of it. It, it. It's such an important place to this country. Um, not just for the music, but if you just take the musical aspect, it's a no-brainer. Anyone who tries to argue where the birthplace of any genuine American musical form comes from, it's New Orleans. There's right. no argument about no, that. No. Um, and, and I actually learned about that uh -huh. later in the game. I just went and had the music and the food and the city blow my mind. Right. And then learned later on that, oh, yeah. no, this, this is no joke. It's not Cleveland. You know? no. No, <laughs> I mean, I love it. Cleveland. Don't get me no, wrong. It's, it's no joke. Um, but, uh, yeah, so that yeah. that definitely um, – and, and now living in my lovely little city here, um, trying to bring my own musical personality, which is very affected by New Orleans, but – I'm not going to be writing tunes about what my life is like down on the bayou. No. You know, it's just I want to be very conscientious and respectful. Well, they don't write about that either. Yeah, not anymore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I, I think, uh, like, I, I, I'm conscientious and respectful of co-opting, yeah. frankly, um, any 
musical form that I feel is historically relevant like that, like African-American music. It was funny. There was a time, I guess when I was in my early 20s, when I discovered that everything I had liked (laughs) from about age 10 had come out of New Orleans. Yeah. And I didn't know it. Yep. You know? Uh, I bought all those singles on Minute. Yep. On AFO. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's still... I brought... brought Heard on me by Prince Lala, right? As right. a single, yeah, when it was new. See, all that stuff is, you know, and and even that, I, I come at it from, you know, the I discovered it because of of Little Feet, yes, and and was like, wow, you know, oh that oh that particular groove, that that yeah. fat man in the bathtub. Right. What is that groove? That yeah. is so cool. It's like, oh, that's a second line groove. And then yeah, yeah. somebody played, uh, I think it was Mojo Hanna, like a, a live uh-huh. version that the Nevilles did. Yes. And then yeah. thinking the Nevilles were great. And then unbelievably, my very first exposure to the meters was I got to open for them. Whoa. I'd never heard them when now, I opened for the, them. The, in San Francisco. the real meters or the funky meters? It, well, it was Leo Nocentelli. Oh. Um, uh, who was missing was Zig. It was uh-huh. Russell Batiste Jr. playing drums. Oh, jeez. And which, you know, yeah, oh, yeah. And I, we have one of my favorite, like, young, dumbass musicians, pardon my French, stories, uh, is we were warming up. We were, like, doing our set and yeah. setting up, and, and the sound man was kind of clueless, and there's this enormous drum set. It has these R's painted on each tom, yeah. right? Yeah. R. We, you know, I don't know who that. And we're like, are we supposed to set our drum kit up? Are we using that? Is this a house kit? And the sound man is like, yeah, I'm pretty sure R stands for rental. Oh, so here's oh, my no. drummer. We're doing our sound oh, check, no. and my drummer's like changing the position of Russell Batiste Jr. I don't know if you know much about Russell Batiste oh, yes. Jr. Oh, yeah. But uh, he's a, uh, at the time, was a particularly fiery fellow. So <laughs> we're sitting there mauling his drum set, and in walks Russell, who goes oh, ballistic. I'm not surprised. And to be fair, I. I he he was screaming and yelling, and he wanted to know, you know, who the hell we thought we were, et cetera, et cetera. And he wanted to be he wanted to be paid right now. Wow. He wanted a hundred dollars right now <laughs> for that MF who has been playing my uh, who's been playing my drum set. And uh, I demurred. I said, no, that's not going to happen. Uh, and and you know who came in and created the piece? Who just said, calm down and put his arm around me oh. and said, relax. George Porter. Really? Yes. Junior. <laughs> George Porter Jr. came in, just like had his hand on my shoulder, young man, you know, and sense. I'm like shaking and sweating, and Russell yeah. Batiste is yeah, like, yeah, yeah. you know, figured out that it was my band. Yes. He wasn't going after my drummer, he was coming after me. <laughs> and I then, of course, pinned it on the sound man. Right. And, uh, and the interesting thing, at the end of the night, I get home after the set, it was incredible, of course, like yet another game-changing moment musically if you know we're opening for these people and you know we were we were terrible <laughs> we were a brand new band i was like 25 years old just like oh and uh <laughs> and and then the meters came on and just completely blew the roof off the place yes and um and after the show george porter again actually it was george and uh art 
yeah. who actually pulled me backstage and were really kind to me and complimentary and uh-huh. you know kind of pat me on the head and yeah, it's like yeah. good boy they had a drink of Cavassier with them it was fantastic and I get home that night and I realized that I had actually swapped tuners with George Porter Jr. Really? and I was holding this tuner that said George Porter Jr. Oh, on geez. it and his was just destroyed. It was like falling apart. Mine was brand new, but I couldn't have been happier. I'm like, yes. I have George Porter Jr. sooner. So, yeah. <laughs> and so that was one of the seminal moments. Now, what band was that? What what band? Mine? Yeah. It was a band called Big Chief. It was my very first band. Wow. Yep. And we did lots of Little Feet and a couple yeah. of my original tunes. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> we were... We were good. I had a good time, but it was yeah. definitely like I don't want to play straight blues anymore. I want to try right. my hand on this. And well, you're lucky you didn't get your ass kicked. Very much, yes. And the more the more I learned about <laughs> Russell Batiste, the more actually I told Nick that story because I didn't meet Nick till like three or four years after that. Yeah. And yeah. Nick is Nick was actually like impressed I made it out with all my teeth. I'll so. never forget. I had you know, I moved here in 90, 1997. I hadn't been here that long, maybe a year. And I'm. Standing in front of the Crystal Ballroom one night before his before gig, people just standing around talking, and and I heard this argument break out between two guys about who's the better drummer, Stanton Moore or Russell Batiste. <laughs> I'm going like, I moved to the right place. Yes, that 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 <laughs> conversation is even happening. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. In Portland, Oregon, yep. people are arguing about who's the better New Orleans drummer, Stanton Moore or Russell Batiste. Yeah, I, I like. Oh, yeah, this, yeah. This I know how I would song. weigh in on that conversation. <laughs> 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 Which man, we just we just had that gig where we opened up for Galactic yeah. a couple of weeks yeah. ago, and it was you really get an appreciation for Stanton Moore. Yeah. I'd never actually. We were backstage, and he's such a great guy. He's a really good man. So um, I'm getting ready to introduce Reggie Houston, and then read my my very emotional piece at the Blues Festival. Okay. In the meantime, there's a drummer setting up, right? and galactic. And I, and I was like trying to pay. I was I had to pay attention to a number of things, and all of a sudden uh, it dawns on me. That's Stanton Moore. <laughs> yep. He's so nondescript and yeah. sort of like low-key. And yeah. Yeah. and yeah, I went, I I shook Stanton Moore's hand yeah. backstage, and I turned around and immediately got a hug from Macy Gray. <laughs> it was really like, wow, <laughs> I totally I belong here. Yeah, I'm not the oddball in this group. So. It, okay, so, so how did this band come together, mostly? Well, um, interestingly, uh, when I first came to Portland, I've been here about 12 years now, and I had been officially bitterly retired from the music business for a solid five years when I moved here. Um, I, of course, was still playing music on my own. You know, I'll always do that. Um, But I have had pretty much, yep, yep, sitting on the couch, playing guitars, I'm always loving it. As I mentioned, my dad's a music teacher, so uh, it's just part of my life. But the music business, and this is even before the digital revolution turned everything upside down. Um, I'd had my record deals that came and went and never saw the light of day and made a great record. My first one, I was really happy with it. And it's no one's ever heard the dang thing. I was Nick Daniels and Willie Green playing drums and bass on the whole thing. Wow. So... uh, you know, and I got here and I had a couple of forays into the Craigslist, like 
hey, I'm here, I'm looking, or not even that, it wasn't ever me putting a Craigslist ad in. I was yeah. like, maybe somebody's looking for a guitar player. Uh-huh. And uh, had a t- couple of interesting experiences and met some nice people, but also had some horrific experiences. It's kind of like dating, isn't it? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. yeah, yeah. Only worse, <laughs> if such a thing is possible. That could be nice. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, and um, <laughs> so sort of through frustration with Craigslist, I just started to kind of poke my way out, and it was when the candlelight was rolling still. Yeah. And man, I stepped into the candlelight, and there's LaRonda. Ah. And LaRonda was really the first person I saw singing like I'd, I'd never wandered into anything live that wasn't like this indie stuff which is just not my thing right um and so i saw LaRonda playing and i saw that um i can't, I can't remember his name because i never actually got to meet him but that left-handed bass player who passed about two or three years ago was a great oh. singer um uh, It'll come to you. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, just just saw it in a pretty impressive group of musicians, and Mark yeah. Steele was playing, of course. And uh-huh. um, I went up and introduced myself to uh, LaRonda, and actually Terry Kason was playing drums. Uh-huh. And I approached Terry, and I kind of described what I was <clears throat> wanting to do, and Terry said, "Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's let's check it out." And uh-huh. um, when I hung out with Terry, uh, you know, through Hook and Crook. Uh, I connected with several different musicians, and uh, you know, I'd, 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 uh, there was this kid, uh, Eric Gold, who was a New Orleans native, who was going to college here, who played drums with me for a while. Was, uh-huh. you know, straight up, he loves that stuff and grew up in the yeah. middle of it. Yeah. Um, but somehow, um, I was, I had been told that Damian Erskine was the man <laughs> in Portland, and it was actually by LaRonda. And oh, when yeah. I was talking to Terry Kaysen, he's like, yeah. well, if you can get him, he's the guy you want to talk to. And I was, right. I was on it, like going to a movie at one of those uh, like fancy movie theaters up in Vancouver where, you know, they serve you food and everything. Yes. And in the lobby, there's a restaurant <clears throat> uh-huh. and there's a jazz trio playing. And, uh-huh. and I just hear this bass player <laughs> just like <laughs> drops me. Yeah. I'm like, oh my God, who is that? Right. And on a break, I went up and approached him. It was, of course, Damien, and Terry had mentioned me to Damien. And I said, uh-huh. are you Damien Erskine? I'm trying to put this thing together. And one thing led to another. We started playing, uh, and then uh, Terry got another gig, and, and uh, uh, Damien says, I have the perfect drummer for this band. Boy, does he. And, uh, and, and lo and behold, <clears throat> the, the great thing, and that's where the Nick Daniels story comes in, ah. is that Damien said, come down to the Benson because I'm playing with him. I've told him all about you. He's interested. Yeah. And I said, great. I'm going to go see my friend's band, Dumps the Funk, playing at Burbati's Pan right around the corner, and then we'll come see you. Yeah. So I go down and connect with Nick, and Nick goes, yeah, let's go get a bite to But first I want to go around the block and uh, go see my buddy who's playing at this bar right around the corner. I just want to go say hi. So I follow him in and Nick takes me to the Benson. Nick was going there to see Reinhard wow. and Reinhard was who I was supposed to go to. So I walk in and imagine the street cred to Reinhard when I come waltzing into the Benson with Nick Daniels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and another cool thing, it looks like, uh, uh, Nick and Reinhard and I are going to do some recording this fall. Really? Yes. Wow. So just, just as a, like you know, we're Nick is my mentor. Reinhard's dad is Nick's mentor. Wow! So it's this 
remarkable little little yeah. uh, gumbo there. Yeah. So I think we're going to cut a few tunes and have a little fun with that as well. So Well, you know, when Reggie Houston moved, the first drummer he hired was Reinhard Mels. Yep, <clears throat> Reinhard's the man. Who was, you know, can play anything. Yeah. Uh, but in addition to being able to play anything yep. and do it brilliantly, he is and always has been the best second-line drummer in town. Yeah. And he's a consummate pro. Yeah. I mean, Damien and Reinhard are, I, I feel very comfortable. The in odd saying, meter twins. Yeah. <laughs> the funky odd meters. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Boom. All right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trademark that. Yeah. <laughs> and they, they like to, to terrorize me on occasion with, oh, yeah? let's see how long Quinby can find the one. And, uh,. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm blaming them. Is it hard to find when they when, when occasionally? They you know what? I I refuse to blame them, but it's totally their fault. Yeah. <laughs> and then on top of that, you get the guy who was just just being inducted into the Oregon Music Hall of Fame yep. to move away from the drum kit and to be their percussion <clears throat> yes. Yeah, no, Fox Brian is a force of nature. And, uh, yeah. We, uh, I'm really, it looks like the Hunters are going to play with him at his induction ceremony. And, that's um, great. You know, and that's actually where the Hunters really sort of matured in their personality as far as bringing, you know, lifelong resident Brian Foxworth and yeah. his Portland R&B roots and his gospel roots and and my influences and the New Orleans influences because the whole idea of the Roseland Hunters, even the band name, is yeah. about mashing together my favorite city and my the place where I live and will probably live for the rest of my life yeah. with my influences in New Orleans and uh, and as as a team it's it's a pretty remarkable group of players and we got uh, you know we just there's a, and there's a lot of people that have you know contributed to this Chris Phillips we got Alex Milstead we've yeah. got you know Daniel Lamb and Mizako God bless John Mizako uh, who brought me into this this scene he uh, did one gig with him and he was absolutely a, an ambassador for me and introduced me to so many great musicians and i'm very he's 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 a good friend yeah. he, he deserves a lot of recognition he's also an unbelievably skilled bass player yeah good man well he was with john lee hooker yep yep <laughs> he's got a killer band now too have you seen uh Knuckleheads? no no um oh god he's gonna shoot me of course bang Soul Commanders. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Um, super, super cool. Super cool. All right, so when did this when did this group first click, really click for you? Um, you know was there, a, was there a gig? Yeah, you know, we we really gelled when we got um, our good foot residency. Yeah. That and that's how we you know, we were kinda like going through different personalities because yeah. at one time I was, my philosophy was when Damien and Reinhardt of course are on the road with Gino, yeah. I've got Brian Foxworth and John Mazzocco. I mean, that's right. That's a, that's not a B team. Correct. That's just, that's just your yeah. other A team. Yeah. Um, but there were two very distinct personalities of the band. That's for sure. Um, and, uh, and through hook and crook realized that, um, you know, Fox is such a power um, when he's not behind the drum kit, yeah. you know, he's already sort of Dennis Chambers of Portland. Right. Um, but uh, like giving him the room and his personality to sort of that, you know, we have such a great rapport on stage and he's such a talent and the way he interacts with the crowd 
is amazing and it's completely counter to me like you know staring at the top of my shoes i don't think i don't think a lot of people realize what brian does when he's when he's not behind a drum kit yep because yep. we've seen him for decades behind a drum kit yep you know and he's and it's great but man, he's all over the stage well the idea is that we're we're having a blast up there yeah and and, and that's yeah. the only you know because if, if you're in it for the money you're going to be bitterly disappointed um, that it, it has to be fun. And part of this is I, I really enjoy um, letting Fox stretch out that way. Uh, and it's not letting him. It's like it's an organic thing. We don't sit down and go, okay, Brian, you know, here's where you do this. There's none of that. Um, and, uh -huh. you know, it, it's, it's just a, it's a great vibe. You know, when, we, when, it's, when it's balanced, that's when we're at our very best. And that's, yeah. that's what we're, you know, as any band does, you strive and you shoot for that. And, yeah. and, uh, as far as, and now getting the material on this record learned, cause we wrote a lot of this in the studio. Really? So this is, in fact, tonight we're playing a song we've never played live. And at the, uh, at the galactic show, we played another song we'd never played live. So, um, the two interesting, more ballad tunes, uh, free, and uh, and Dragonfly, um, both of which coincidentally are the ones that are getting all the play with the sync deal. Like all the TV and the movie people really? are digging on that. You know, I can just see us being like the next extreme with their more than words song that has absolutely nothing to do with the way they sound live. But you know what? I'll take that. If, yeah. it, if it buys me a house and a swimming pool, yeah, really? fine. I'll be the next James Taylor. I got no problem with that at all. So, uh, but yeah, they're more. They're more melodic. It's more of like a Steve Winwood kind of approach to the music, but it's still got that crazy big rhythm section behind it. Yeah. And, you know, really proud of that stuff too. It was part of the interesting – when we brought Berlin on, he – when I gave him, you know, 15 or 20 songs, uh -huh. he really gravitated towards the more melodic stuff, really? which really surprised me. And frankly, I was a little self-conscious about because there's the – Mike Quimby writing his songs for his own, you know, sort of navel gazing, <laughs> uh, you know, very personal stuff in there. And I wasn't anticipating, but I thought, oh, you know, let's see what he thinks about this stuff. And he, he definitely moved in the direction of the more melodic, more uh, songwriter ish stuff, partly because the goal was to separate the project. Yeah. You know, it's like, yeah, you, there's some really strong songwriting and, hooky melodies and you've got a badass band and you've got the, the booty shaking stuff too. So there it is, you know, and it was, it was, I was, uh, he had to wrestle with me and that's the thing I've never with Justin and, and Steve, um, I've never relinquished control of a project right. like this ever before. Okay. And, and I'm, I'm like, I, totally trust both of those guys yeah. um, and not just because of the name because I got to spend time with them in a studio and <clears throat> be thoroughly humbled wow. by their expertise and their knowledge and their their uh, commitment to understanding that I wanted to do something important and good on my standard and that their standard consistently was much higher than mine. I'd be like, Oh, that's great. That's great. And they're like, what are you talking about? And like, no. <laughs> so really getting put through the ringer by these two pros was a, it was a great experience. And I think we're probably going to end up, you know, and it was so piecemeal. We came in, it was a demo, then it was an EP and then it turned into a record and then it was stretched out. We didn't really ever have any big blocks of recording time. So the next project, if it happens, 
is going to be done like a record. So, because <laughs> it was driving everybody nuts. You know, yeah. somebody's always on the road. Somebody's, you know, somebody's, you know, dog is sick or something. You know, now we're going to do the, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll hopefully make it happen and uh, I'll be able to spend somebody else's money making it. So, <laughs> he says, hopefully. So you've been picked up by Burnside Distributing? Yep, <clears throat> which good. is great. Yep, very excited about that. Um, to now sort of put my foot in that, you know, the realities of the music selling business, which are, are uh, Byzantine, yeah. to say the least, to me. And <clears throat> Okay. Well, well, look at this day. It's not like the old days. No. You don't have to deal with the mob. <laughs> but that almost sounds refreshingly simple no. now. <laughs> no, you, you, you never met my uncle Vince. Right, right? okay. Uh, I, should be, I should be glad about that, I guess. Yeah. The reason that Frankie Avalon and Frankie Valley and, and all those Italian guys were on the charts. Right. There's a reason for that. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, and there's not a huge, what is I mean, Quinby, where'd that come from? Yeah. yeah. Where's that odd, you know, Welsh, ex so the Welsh exile as, gang? As, as um, difficult as the music industry is these days, nobody's going to kill you. No, that is good. <laughs> that is good. Well, you know, part of it, it's like, I guess it's, <clears throat> how you get something to get traction on a national or even regional level. Um, certainly the tour until your eyes bleed thing yeah. is not what does it. I mean, to me at least, and, and, and it's a good thing because there's no way I'm going to do that unless there's a way to have it be sustainable. Cause I got a bunch of grown men in my band who right. need to make a living and uh, until I can compete with somebody like Gino Vanelli, <laughs> it's not in the cards for us to be touring. Oh yeah, no, we're definitely we're stretching out in the Pacific Northwest. We're doing Seattle. We're doing yeah. some of the festivals that are flung. I'm definitely going to be booking us into San Francisco, where which is where I started my career. Um, and uh, so everybody wants to do it, but it's got to make sense. Um, and right now. <clears throat> But it hasn't even been reviewed yet. So if we see traction, we know for sure we're going to be playing around here. We're all homers. We love this. We like having a band with a bit of traction locally. And when you come to see the Roseland Hunters, you're going to see a, a world-class outfit. We're really proud of that. So, Would you like to play the Maple Leaf? Oh, my God. <clears throat> yeah. Bucket list. There are a few bucket list items remaining, yeah. and, and being invited to play Jazz Fest, of course, is one of them. Yeah. Um, and uh, and the Maple Leaf is amazing. Yeah. I'm actually more intimidated by the Maple Leaf than I would be at Jazz Fest, yeah, uh, yeah. because it's oh, that's yeah. like yeah. you better you better you better go there and nail it. Correct. <clears throat> you know, it's not. It's, yeah, there's nothing like it. And of course, it is seeing Rebirth. At the Maple Leaf yeah. is one of the very best musical experiences anyone can have. Absolutely. Just that crowd, yeah. ear to ear, all the way to the back of the place. It's at 105 degrees in that place, and it's like <clears throat> going into a meat grinder. <clears throat> Excuse me, but uh, yeah, it was the first place I ever had king cake. Oh man, <laughs> I can only do about two or three bites of that stuff. Uh, but uh, I didn't get the baby. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, it's it, – and, you know, 
I got to give a shout out to my my friends of the Misty Crew and Nimbus on that note as well. That, that I love the vibe that that group of people has, and they're they're they they embrace it and they do a great job. And I'm really proud to be you know, uh, I, I, you know, I'm usually late with my dues. I should say <laughs> that that's a shout out to Julia and Tim Shaughnessy. Thank you very much. Uh, but yeah, just it it's such a, a magical, fun vibe, and get to bring a little bit of that to this to Portland as well. So how do you do this and maintain this other this other life that you have? It's wiping me out. I'm exhausted. Yeah, and because as I said, I'd never intended for the hunters to to turn into what they did. This was not an ambition of mine. It just got, it went, it organically sort of blew up. And it, actually, it started with your phone call to me two years ago, wanting to interview me. And I'm like, really? How did you even hear about us? <laughs> I was like genuinely surprised that you wanted to talk to me. And and. Uh, you know, I can thank Damien and Reinhard Street Cred for that, but uh, yeah, it's I have a full time job, and uh, this band is also a full time job. Would you like to reveal what that is? Uh, you know, you'll line. lose listeners just no, because it no. will bore them to death. I'm in sales. <laughs> I recover value added tax for large American companies, wow. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's not sinister or anything. You're not going to lose no. listeners for that, but no. definitely. Uh, it's and I've had it for a long time. Like I said, I checked out of the music biz and was really digging. You it's you know two days of learning. Up. It's you don't have to be in. Yeah, yeah. It's really because I'm a complete shyster. That's how you know <laughs> <I'm> in sales. <laughs> yeah, it's a uh, it's a uh, it's great because I have a lot of autonomy um, uh, that I have had this situation where I can design my own travel schedule and, and I, it's very rare. I have a conflict. Um, uh, but I've really dug the sensation of eating regularly and yeah. paying my mortgage, <laughs> you know, uh, not usually. No, it's, I, I cover all of Canada and everything West of Chicago. So I definitely put some miles on and, uh, several times I have been, in an airport going, oh, my God, I'm not going to make it back for my gig. Um, and getting off of a six-hour airplane flight to go sing for three hours, that's no fun either. So it's, it's, uh, it's presented its challenges, but the realities of, you know, and I think uh, I am the only person in my band right now with a full-time day job. And seeing how hard these guys have to work yes. to make a living – <clears throat> somebody of the talent level of anyone and pick one, pick one of the guys, um, how difficult it is and how nimble you have to be and how, how dynamic and uh, flexible to be able to play with a lot of different people and be able to adopt a lot of different uh, styles of music and play them as well as they do. Um, <clears throat> I think people throw the word world class around like it's nothing. Yeah. But those guys they really are, yeah. And I, and I, I learn every single time getting to sing next to Brian Foxworth that it's made me a much, much better performer. Getting Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm never going to be that. Well, I, I think, A, his, his standard and his, his energy um, and his gospel roots um, where learning 
from somebody by proxy who basically grew up in the church as um, <clears throat> really uh, I don't I don't want to sing like Brian Foxworth does it's never been a goal of mine except I'm not an emulator necessarily but it's solidly in my musical background and it's really appealing um, and also man I, I'll admit it I want to keep up I don't <laughs> want I don't want to be like the guy who looks like a waiter out on the <laughs> yeah. and on the stage who's got all these hot shots you know I want to be able to hold my own and and I've taken the opportunity I mean I've developed more at this point in my career over the last three years than I have at any individual time and then I've got people who are really good teachers in both Damien and Reinhardt in my band who will take the time to explain something to me and you know they're also frustrated with me because I have zero discipline I don't practice at all <laughs> and uh and 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 learning you know band dynamics on the stage like where a guitar part will fit in with a particular groove um and guys of that sophistication who really think about it and can chart everything out and write it all out and really visualize it. I don't read music so it has to be a explain on a more broad front about you know what you know how I interact with the band mostly as a guitar player that's really because these guys play they and, I, and I'm not they make sport occasionally of <laughs> hey let's let's put this in seven and watch Mike fall down and cry um, and and uh, but that it it holds me it holds me to a particular standard. Uh, and with the injury that I got, it's very funny, and I'm getting a bit of grief about this as well. Um, it took being assigned by a doctor 30 to 45 minutes of guitar playing every day for me to practice. <laughs> and I'm coming out of this grievous injury a better guitar player than I was before I got hurt because part of my physical therapy is to play guitar. Now, before that, me practicing guitar was sitting down and saying, I got to practice and getting about 10 or 15 minutes in and being distracted by what was on Netflix when I was sitting down to play my scales. I just, I'm terrible at it. I have no discipline. If I'm on tour, great. No problem. It's like, you know, it's like the difference between walking on a treadmill and playing a game of basketball for me. Like I just shut down. I can't do it unless, of course, a doctor prescribes yes. guitar practice for me. And of course, I've caught myself now that I've gone through the whole process and I'm quote unquote ready to go with my injury. As soon as I got that stamp of approval, I stopped practicing. <laughs> so now it's now it's an exercise in, in discipline again. So I'll be back on the horse. I swear. Did, did you start on guitar? No, I'm a piano player originally. Wow. Yeah, I didn't pick up a guitar until I was 20. Uh, when did you start playing piano? Uh, I was around 12 or 13. My dad, being a piano player, did my first gig when I was 14. Really? I played Straight No Chaser with my dad's That's jazz band. It was my very first, very first professional experience. You played Monk? I did. <laughs> I mean, okay. To be fair, yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure if I would want to like try to dig up the archive uh, performance of that and be proud of it, but uh, it was cool, you know. And I got my picture uh, in my junior high yearbook, you know, wearing a fedora and playing the piano in this funky little bar in Ashland. It was pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. but then, uh, yeah, frankly, I literally I heard Stevie Ray Vaughan for the first time, and the next day went out and bought my first guitar. Like at a party? Or no, I heard him. I saw him live. I saw. Oh. Lonnie Mack opened for Stevie Ray Vaughan Jeez. at the Berkeley Greek Theater, and 
I was blown away by Lonnie Mack. Like, yeah. wow, this is really oh, right. cool. This is what I want to do. And then, and then Stevie Ray came out and just, it was great. So, huh. yep, living in San Francisco, 20 years old, and uh, sold a clock radio or something and went and bought this god-awful piece of garbage Yamaha guitar, which I <laughs> then proceeded to torment every roommate and neighbor for the next two years. Yeah, like literally neighbors knocking on the door saying, just, just stop. Please just stop. Yeah, you, you're, yeah, just don't do this. Yeah. <laughs> so, and now look where I am. So, yeah. I had a, I had a, I had a next door neighbor one time. It was really, it was really funny. Um, and, and they had a piano, which was, the wall wasn't very thick. It was one of those very old apartments that had been divided up years right. ago. Okay. And so the wall wasn't very thick. And right next to the bedroom, you know, my bedroom was right next to where they had a piano. Right. A real piano. Wow. And so all of a sudden, I started hearing this horrible, horrible the guy would like try the same phrase like for half an hour. Yeah. It's crazy. I got, you know, I lost my temper and beat up the walls and stuff. Anyway. But then I started hearing somebody else playing, and it was like angels. It was the most amazing thing I ever heard. So one day there was a knock at the door, and it was both of them. And but the one guy who could play was that was Michael Haberman, who is world famous. Yeah. Now. Nice. Because he could play this stuff written by a composer named Sorabji, and it had like eight staves. I mean, it was like right. nutty. It took yeah. Years to, to play one piece. Right. So yeah. Yeah. Yep. But the, the guy who just kept doing that same phrase over and over again, he, he moved out. Thank you. <laughs> <coughs> he did it over and over again. He never got it right. Right. <laughs> well, you know, and, and that's that's where I lose it. I, I usually don't do things I'm not really good at right away, <laughs> which is a curse, you know, because okay. you want to develop. And right. I just have no discipline. And, and I'm getting better as I get older, which is weird. You'd think that it would be like, uh, I'm just going to write myself off. So <laughs> so uh, will there be a, a CD release gig? There will be. It's not scheduled yet. It's going to be in the fall. Um, <clears throat> again, it's sort of working around everybody's schedules. And, and uh, you know, there's – we're going to have the release, obviously. Burnside is going to send it out, and I'll make a big deal, and I'm probably going to hit up uh, – we'll do something. Uh, maybe – it's really an issue of venue right now. We're trying to pick, you know. And uh, So you want to go out on Chicory? That sounds great. All right. Perfect. Thank you, Michael. Let's Thank you very much, Chicory. Tom.
break. Hey.